I'm going to pray for our food, and then I'm going to turn it over to Jim. And we have a great, a great afternoon ahead of us. Um, we have, let's see, where's Anna? I'm going to put her on the spot. We have Anna Ho. I met with Anna two weeks ago. She lives in Vietnam, and um, on the table there's a in some information for a screening we're doing on a documentary called It's a Girl. You can read about that. But Anna mentioned, as she was talking about, just being in the States in the midst of our election and our kind of like mass furry and chaos on it. And I want her, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, to say, like, she made this statement, like, you're not the only ones having elections in this world. So she made a great statement about, some, about something particular going on that I'm going to ask her just to kind of share. And then maybe can you pray for that particular situation in the church and our lunch. So uh, one of the things I did mention was that uh, in the DRC, so one of the countries we're working in, the Dominican, the Democratic Republic of Congo, they're also having elections or trying to have elections at the moment. And it's not going well for them. Their president, who's been uh, two terms in power, which is the limit to how long you're allowed to be, is refused to step down, refused to organize elections. And so there's a lot of violence. I've seen over 50 people have passed away so far uh, in riots. And um, they're expecting it to escalate. They're expecting that to get a lot worse in the next uh, few months the elections were scheduled for uh, December. So uh, so we've really been asking for prayer for uh, that area, just this realization that there are elections happening all around the world. I became more aware of it. I was with a group of people and they were saying, we want to start your program, but can we start it in six months or a year because we'll be having a war because of elections. And, and that's a normal story or a too common story over in Africa. So it was just a reminder to me that while we're all in a level of angst about elections, that um, that God is still here and that there are other people around the world that we also want to lift up in our prayers where you pray for your own elections. Is that it? Yep. <laughs> okay, for lunch. Uh, Father, we're just uh, hugely grateful for this opportunity to be together, to... Uh, to listen to you, to listen to the speakers, and to fellowship with one another. And Father, we just really pray that you would be in our presence. And Father, as we do remember elections around the world, and uh, even next week there's uh, significant elections in Nicaragua and other countries, Father, we just really pray that your will would be done. Father, I pray for peace in the nations. Father, I pray for protection of people in these nations. Lord, I pray for these nations that are just a huge majority Christian and yet still struggling with elections. And Father, I pray that your name would be raised up. I pray that your church would know how to respond and would be able to bring peace. Lord, that they would be peacemakers to their nations. And Father, we just pray for the election here, Lord, that your will would be done. Father, we thank you that you are God, that you are in control, that uh, all things are in your hands. And Father, we just uh, thank you for this lunch. We pray you'd bless it to your body, our bodies. We pray for strength, energy, and just uh, for a uh, restoration as we spend time together, Lord, that we would leave re-energized for the week ahead. We praise you, Lord. Amen. We always want to start off with a question. We want to get discussion happening around your tables. So uh, I'll introduce the speakers in a moment. But before that, we wanted to start with a question um, for discussion. So here it is. Uh, around your tables, discuss ways that you are currently benefiting from the work of the government. So try to not be super global. Try to start as local as possible. Ways that you today, right now, are currently benefiting from the work of the government. So go ahead and discuss around your tables. Okay, let's go ahead and bring the discussion to a close.
I would love to hear from you. Who's someone at your table who came up with a, a, a unique answer? Or any, anything, throw it out. How you've benefited from government, how you're benefiting from government right now. Freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. Yeah, the fact that you're... So we, we know intuitively that we, are, we greatly benefit from the good work of government simply because we know that our, we have sewage systems and we, uh, we got here by driving on roads that uh, were, were put together and designed um, by our, our government and uh, funded through taxes. And we know that we ourselves flourish and benefit greatly from government. And many of us know intuitively that this is a great way that we can love our neighbor through good engagement in policy. Except it's not always that way. A lot of times in the, in the Christian circles as we talk about politics, I know that many of us have a sense of tension around this. As I've followed what's going on on Facebook, and many of us are, are, have tension about the choices that are in front of us and really have a sense of, is there another way? Can we imagine something different than the binary choices of just choose either or every four years on one election based on one issue? But what does real citizenship look like for our neighbor? And what would it look like if Christian communities were known as the healing communities, the distinct communities in the ways that they engage in these things? Imagine with me for a moment if Christians were engaged in political discourse that's marked by the fruit of the Spirit, patience, love, gentleness, joy, but as people who had deep convictions and generous civility. Imagine if Christians pursued a political vision that's rooted in the love of neighbor rather than the love of money. That would be distinct. What if we cared about the whole scope of God's world, refusing to choose between economics and the environment, young mothers and unborn children, national security and national hospitality, justice and peace, or any of the other binary decisions that the world says that you must make? And those binary decisions are what we could call worldliness. What if we were known for people being motivated by the self-giving love of Christ more than self-interest? respected and partnered with people on the left and the right, but only gave our allegiance to Jesus and would not bow our knee to anyone? What if we engaged in local action more than national speculation? What if we amplified the voice of the most vulnerable rather than the voice of the highest bidder? Imagine if we were known as people who were who would think and read and pray and who are slow to speak and quick to listen as we engaged, if Christians were the people who had the long-term vision of the kingdom rather than putting our hopes in four-year increments? And what if we saw elections as a means of loving our neighbors rather than finding our saviors? Now, we know that the creation is not the whole story. Um, All of what God made is corrupted by evil. Humans don't obey God's direction. Our rebellion means that every relationship that humans have is distorted by sin. 
Helping our members understand, though, that while God chooses to give the goodness of the created order and enables all humans to participate in further developing all that God made, the potential of any political community, the potential work of government, the potential work of citizens, is all distorted as a direct result of humans' rebellion. And after our rebellion, the task of upholding justice within political community is no longer able to just be limited to the promotion of the good, right? There has to be work to be done to restrain evil. And um, this becomes necessary that also government at times uh, restrains evil in a way by compelling citizens to conduct themselves in ways that are good. But this too is not the end of the story. God sends Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, to redeem all things. And Jesus' death and resurrection provides the way in which all things, humans, institutions, the physical world, are ultimately reconciled to God and to one another. Until that day, every bit of what God made, including our political communities, is under God's authority. And the call on all human life is to recognize Jesus' reclamation of all that God created. The good news of Jesus Christ is, among many other things, that creation has been recovered and is being restored so that it will finally come to fulfillment in the city of God. That means something for the political communities in which we live every day. Helping our members understand that fulfilling God's calling for us in God's world means reforming what has been distorted. This means starting with our political communities as they are right now, as broken and messy as they look. Um, Our work as citizens in faithful response to God is to help shape these political communities, which must be lined up with God's good purpose and intention for them. So the first way we work on this with our folks uh, is equipping through the word. The second way, uh, equipped by the word, we have to become communities who serve our neighbors as citizens. So many of us know what it is to serve other people tangibly, right? I would hope in a room like this, that is very, very clear. This is really easily understood based on the teachings of scripture, to serve one's neighbor, serve the least among us. So, you know, take an example Uh, It's baseline example. Say people in your worshiping community are tutors at a school where kids don't have a parent at home to help them do homework or the academic quality of the school is um, not as high as other places. Um, And, you know, this is really the work, a ministry of your group to uh, help tutor, you know, kids in math and complete their homework. So this is a very clear way and it's a really important work, right? Um, It's harder, though, for us to sort of think then about what it means not to just serve our neighbors who have that need when it comes to the political community. So continuing with the previous example, it's kind of hard for tutors to think about how they act as citizens. But if you think about this at the most local level of your political community, citizens might respond to God's invitation with a hopeful diagnosis about what's wrong, right? Why are kids in need of tutors? Why is this happening? Citizens might respond by asking the question of what might need to be lined up with God's good intention in this political community. And then citizens might start to ask the question about how do we respond to God's invitation to go about this work? So 
In this example, citizens might begin raising thoughtful questions about the quality of the facilities that affect the kids they tutor in a particular zip code, say, shaped by an understanding of God's intent for the unfolding of culture and knowing the importance of understanding and interpreting God's word. Say these citizens begin to invest their time and energy into understanding and discussing what structural factors are at play in this community. Citizens begin to examine where potential injustice resides and what could be done so that things more fully resemble the political community that God intends. And this is a question that becomes um, really one focused on the well-being of the political community. So, you know, in the story, pretend it's Phoenix, a question focused on the well-being of the community as a whole, not what's good for me or people who are like me. And in some cases, uh, the answers to these questions may then lead citizens to do things like advocate for reforms or working to support those who are holding public office to help shape new laws or engage new administrative structures that ensure a political community that upholds justice for all. So finally, after we've done this work of equipping through the word, equipping uh, our folks to think about uh, serving our neighbors as citizens, Lastly, in relation to the culture around us, we really stand out as communities that do hopeful diagnosis. So as leaders of worshiping communities, we need to remember that God invites us as citizens to examine our political communities with surely a critical, but ultimately a hopeful diagnosis. As we respond to God's world as it is right now, as we engage as citizens with the world around us in response to God's invitation, this is all a vastly different approach to the prevailing cultural diagnosis of despair, which for most Christians leads to a decision to withdraw from political engagement entirely. It is also a different approach than a baseline effort to be civil. Civility is a good thing, and we need more of it. But it is a behavior. Civility is not the purpose of our citizenship. So we must encourage the folks in our congregations to think and act as citizens who work then, do the hard work but the good and faithful work of responding to God's invitation to animate, scrutinize, advance, and when needed, correct through reform our political communities in calling us to citizenship, God invites us to develop and accurately reflect the well-being of the political communities in which we live and then act accordingly. And in so doing, we respond to God's call to do justice and to love our neighbor. Thanks. I'm looking forward to our discussion. So our next speaker is a, is a man who um, is influencing many people in this room profoundly through, uh, you know, through the speakers in your car mostly as you listen to his music. But his biography, Show Baraka's biography, is quite uh, extensive and uh, engages a lot of areas of life. Let me read some of these. Educated at Tuskegee University and the University of North Texas, Show studied television, film, anthropology, and public administration. He has more educational emphases than I have credits in the university. 
He, he has become an artist, a philosopher, a social thought leader in, in contemporary culture. He spent nine years traveling the world as a recording artist and a public speaker. He's done numerous overseas activist work, ranging from race relations in South Africa to establishing musical cohorts in Indonesia. He's the founding member of the Christian hip-hop group, the 116 Click. He's uh, also the co-founder of um, the 4th District and the AND Campaign, which I think is one of the most uh, creative, prophetic pictures of ways of engaging politics in a different, distinct way as Christians. So he's going to come up now and speak to us. Would you go ahead and give him a hand? That introduction, that's what happens when you go to Wikipedia right there. It's kind of embarrassing. How's everybody doing? Doing pretty well? I, too, like to speak with my hands, so I may be all over the place. Um, so uh, I am not, I am not a, uh, an expert on politics, not a political strategist. Uh, I will be speaking from more of a philosophical, sociological perspective on how I've seen, not only just myself, but my peers and friends that started the Ann campaign, how we look to uh, create this new narrative, right? this new form of storytelling and political engagement. Uh, we think is quite important. We do believe that storytelling is 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 it formulates identities, right? Um, I think uh, the ultimate question that we're all struggling with when we talk about politics and policy is is like how does God want us to live? And I know that John Frame, whom I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, he he makes the statement that uh, there are many ways to know what thus says the Lord on ethical issues. There there's ways of telling story through narrative, through poetry, parables, humor. And apocalyptic, and in today's political landscape, a lot of it is po- apocalyptic. Um, but hopefully, we can start to shift the paradigm on how we are to look not only just at how we engage politically, but how we engage on a social level. And I think storytelling is quite important because my earliest, uh, I guess you can say, recollections of political understanding came from a family that was pretty interesting, and. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I remember when I was, I know I was like elementary school. And, a, and an example of bad storytelling is this. When I was in elementary school, my, during Bush and Clinton's, the first George W, I mean, first, first Bush, George H, was running against Bill Clinton. I remember my uncle went ahead and voted for George Bush. And everybody in my family, like, hated him for like a good three months, literally. See, I got a brother right there who's like, yeah, I feel you because I know what that's like. So, as you know, I guess it was just this innate, intrinsic thing in black people that you just can't vote Republican. And so, that was taught to me at a very young age. And so, uh, growing up, I just had this innate disdain for Republicans because I saw that my family spoke, like, just, just derogatory things about Republican candidates. And this is an example of terrible, bad storytelling. This is how bigotry, this is how ignorance is perpetuated and passed down through uh, family and generations. But what I want to do is kind of talk about good storytelling and, 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 a, and, a, and, a, and a, an example of how I personally, not necessarily in politics, but how I know like good storytelling has shaped my life and, and shaped the way that I think. When I was around that same age, I remember my mom's telling me something that has changed my life forever. She said, baby, you look good in red. And ever since then, red has been my favorite color. So much so 
that I wore red everywhere, and I'm from California, and I grew up in a Crip neighborhood. And so I was willing to die for the things that my mom communicated. But we also are uh, familiar with great storytellers like C.S. Lewis. Phyllis Wheatley is someone who's one of my heroes. Um, there are numerous accounts in, in, of people who tell accurate stories that lead us to a lot of what Stephanie was talking about, this idea of the image of God. And we can't obviously talk about this idea of ethics and creating policies and, and without starting there. And I think she did a wonderful job of, 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 of formulating discussion from that perspective. But if we look in the scriptures, we see that the idea of institution governance and policy is something that came before the fall. So this is not a wicked thing. This is not something that that is, uh, is created because of the wickedness of human beings. This is something that's good. The idea of trying to create institutions or trying to create structures so that human beings can know how does God want us to live is something that's beautiful, right? And we see that in Genesis 1, right, where God is sovereign all, all, over all things. So we see first initially that there's a governing or there's, a, there's sovereignty over all creation. And then we see uh, that there's even order in creation in nature. And then we go down to 26, we see in Genesis 1, 26, we see that there is subordination in the creation of human beings in the image of God and that there is a form of authority that human beings have to uh, God. But then we see in latter in 26 that there is an ordination, there is a, there is a task given to us that we are called to be cultivators and creators, culture makers, right? Um, this also is interesting to me is a new, this new revelation of understanding the importance of faith and work, that work is something that was ordained to us before the fall. So for you sorry people who want to complain about work all the time, you're going against the, the order of God. So work is worship. And then we also see that uh, in 18, uh, chapter 2, that there's community that's created. Right? And so there's another structure and form of policy and how we connect with one another. It's not just how we uh, uh, connect with God and how there's ways of interaction and structure with God and how is there structure with the land, but there's structure with one another. And then we go to verse 24 in chapter 2, and we see there's structure and union and how we are to create covenants with one another. Uh, and then lastly, we see in uh Verse 17, that there is a uh, rules and governance on how we are to handle this tree. But bad storytelling, obviously, bad policy is seen later in uh, or in the next chapter where we see Satan being divisive, right? And in Satan's understanding of policy, he says, no, 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 it's there's a problem here because obviously... Like these rules are here to subjugate you in a way that, you know, you, that it shouldn't be. And so, uh, you know, uh, God's lying to you. He's just he just doesn't want you to be like him. Truly, he didn't say that you will die. This is Satan's attempt to create bad policy. Right. And so what we see is the removing of dignity. We see that this creates idolatry in us. The other thing we see is that there's a, a removal of dependency and it creates inverted power. And then we see also that there is a, a removal of unity and, and it creates division. And oftentimes this is something that we see in our own politics. And so Satan's manipulation in the garden is very similar to how many of our politics and philosophy is created today. We form idols in office. We desire power and we create division. Um, now, what I'm not here to do today is to demonize 
political parties. Obviously, parties are instituted so that we can get things done, right? Um, uh, what I am here to do is to just castigate somewhat of how we view that because being on the left is not necessarily wrong as people who don't, they want, you know, more government interaction, right? And being on the right is a form of you want less government interaction. I think what we struggle with or what I struggle with and, and what a lot of my contemporaries, what we struggle with is this polarization on the far left and the far right, which is the perversion of things that we think can be, you know, debated within the public discourse, right? But on the extreme left, what we seem to find are people who want to create a, a secular utopia that progresses past logic, that removes itself from God. But on the far right, what you have are people who seem to want to preserve a dead corpse. They often want to perpetuate policies that may need some progression, that may need some change. And oftentimes they, they find themselves in bigoted ideas, right? Um, uh, Carl Ellis, uh, a hero of mine and a good friend, theologian and anthropologist, he says, if you marry a political party, it will pimp you. And what we've seen, honestly, I think is what we've seen is a lot of this in our, in today when, when, when evangelicals marry the right, what happened is, is when the right goes somewhere that you can't go, you're tied to this particular, and now you're lost, you're left. And so the Ann campaign, right, is this organization, it's a coalition of Christians, primarily urban Christians, who felt like we've been dealt this, this false choice in the political landscape. We're individuals who feel the conviction of God, who agree that there are certain things that God has called us to stand for when it comes to moral values, when it comes to family institutions, or the institution of the family, and when it comes to how God has called us to interact our faith or to engage our faith uh, in the political and social landscape. But we're also people who have also grew up in communities and neighborhoods who've seen marginalization, who've seen the impact of bad policies. And so we're also showing compassion that oftentimes seems to be that of the left. But what we're not trying to do is say we're demonizing the party. What we want to emphasize is this idea of being transcendent and being able to engage parties um, on the level of which the Bible challenges us to put principles over partisanship. Um, we believe that politics is limited in forming dignity. Um, um, one of the things that, that troubles me is how I think that the church has been somewhat complicit in this idea of continuing the lack of dignity. So what I'm going to do is just three points that I'm going to try to make and get out of here. Uh, first of all, I want to just deal with this idea of dignity. Then I'm going to, I'm going to deal with this idea of compassion, uh, our progress through compassion, not power. And then last is unity with not uniformity. Um, and when we're talking about dignity, obviously we're going to talk about the Imago Day. We're talking about how does... How do our policies point people to image-bearing individuals, right? Christian or not, but how do we see people, all people, made with the dignity that God has created us in? And I want to I want to start with the story from Mar, uh, from Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali, and some of you guys may have heard this story, but it's it's so powerful and poignant. Muhammad Ali is in the 1960s around this time where he's sharing this story about how he. He uh, grew up in this in this uh, in this American country, this Christian nation, and he used to always look at these images of Jesus. And he would ask his mom, "Why is every image of Jesus white? Why are why are all the angels in the pictures white?" 
And uh, his mom was like, I guess the, the black angels are taking pictures, baby. Then he goes on to say, well, Miss America's white, Miss Universe is white. He said, angel food is white. Devil cake is black. <laughs> and he goes, ugly duckling's black. Tarzan been swinging from tree to tree in the continent of Africa, talking to animals. Africans been there for centuries, can't talk to no animals. And then he goes on to talk about how he said, you know, I went to the Olympics and I fought for America and I won the gold medal and I decided to come home and I just knew I'll be treated like a human being. And he sits in his this diner in Louisville, Kentucky, and he, he tries to order some food and the woman walks up to him and he says, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, what are you doing? He's like, I would like to order some food. And she says, well, we don't serve Negro. And he's like, well, that's good because I don't eat it. And so eventually <laughs> he gets up and leaves. But there's a statement that he makes after that. He said, I grew up in this Christian nation, went to Christian churches, and yet I could not find dignity. He says, and at that point, I realized that I was going to be a Muslim ever since. And that broke my heart because that's a lot of my existence. Because what we'll find is when identity is not, when dignity is not formed in people, they create dignity for themselves. And so a lot of times what you'll find in communities of, that, uh, of color is that we'll create religions. And nobody's going to create a modest religion, right? We're going to create religions that make me say, I'm God. And the white man's Satan. He's, he's the devil. And what you'll have is a lot of religions that some of you guys probably have never heard about, things that I deal with on a constant basis, right? But one of the things that I've always communicated to my brothers and sisters on both sides is that we don't need new religions. We just need the real one. We need true Christianity. Um, but it's, it's, obvious, it's obvious that the church has failed in, in this. And if we know that the church has failed, and it's, it's easy for us to understand how people don't trust government with policy, because if the church... And Christians uh, and some of our great theologians communicated and perpetuated these ideas of individuals being three-fifths of human beings. And, and George Whitfield's uh, uh, fighting for the continuation of slavery in Georgia. Uh, some of our great theologians and heroes who people I still love to this day. And I, and I believe we can get great information from own slaves is problematic because then what you're saying is the people that we quote and we read saw a problem with image bearing in myself, right? And so this is an issue with the church. And I think oftentimes we perpetuate this even in uh, a lot of our teaching and in our engagement. Because what we uh, want to communicate is that not only is that are we created in the image of God and that relationships were made to reflect the, the image of God, but also that third aspect of being cultivators and creators are, is, a, is a very important aspect of, of being made an image of God. And oftentimes we don't see that. We, we, we create a religion that has a personal, uh, 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 personal implications but doesn't have communal implications. But we got to understand if we're cultivators and creators and we create systems, that means we create systems that can be flawed. That means we create systems that are, that, are, that are disjointed and that are broken, right? And so because of sin, it's not only that our personal relationship has been manipulated and, and has been corrupted. It's our relationship with one another has been corrupted, but as well as what we do and what we create has been corrupted. That means the systems that we exist and move within have been corrupted. And so uh, it's... Though, you know, and obviously we know that, uh, well, God redeems all those things, amen. And 
there are, there are tons of good Samaritans in here who find ways to exert themselves to create change. And I heard a wise man say one time, I know there are plenty of good Samaritans in the room, but at some point we got to start asking the question, why is so much happening on the Damascus road? And then how do we actually create change on that road? What do we do to change that? Because physical change, right? Physical like policies can create physical change. I mean, physical chains, like in, 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 in uh, enslavement. And although that's not today in this country, we, we do recognize that there's still a lot of mental enslavement that is happening. And I went to Nigeria, and, and just a quick example. I went to Nigeria and how, how mental enslavement and psychosis works within people. I went to Nigeria, and I'm on a plane, and, uh, and it was 99% African. Um, I, I was the only American, so I guess it's black, one black guy. And there was a white dude on a plane, and he was dressed down. He wasn't dressed like he was any kind of official. He wasn't dressed like he was important. But we get off the plane. We're going through the TSA, and uh, he's the only white gentleman in a sea of black folk. And the security guy points to him. And he's just scared out of his mind, which I understand. And he's like, he's like, come here. And the white dude's like, please don't be talking to me. So he's looking around like, no, nah, brother, he's talking to you. He's talking to you. <laughs> so eventually he makes his way through the people. And the, the officer just opens the gate and lets him through and closes the gate. And I'm with the liaison. And I'm like, wait, hold up. What just happened? <laughs> and so I look. I was like, yo, what just what just happened? He's like, I don't know, brother, but I will find out. And I was, I know that was very racist of me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Terrible accent. If there's any Nigerians in the building, get at me later. Um, but he, and I'm like, no, don't do that. Cause I'm not trying to get arrested. So anyway, he goes and he, and he asks, and we get to the front. He asks, he's like, Hey, what, what, what's going on? And he was like, Oh, he was an official. And he's like, no, he's not. He didn't have a tag on. He wasn't wearing, but what happens is right. When you have a people who have been told and have lacked dignity for centuries or for, for decades, they begin to perpetuate within their own mind that they are less. And they see other folks as more superior than them. And I think oftentimes this is what's happened in the creation of a lot of policies in our country. Um, our obsession, uh, because it's, uh, and we've gotten here because of our, our, our obsession with power, and I believe our obsession with power in our storytelling corrupts the image of God in us. It also wants us to assume the worst in those who oppose us. It leads us to believe that we are the center of our story and others play meaningless characters that are disposable. Our country, and not just white people, our country is a country that is built on power. We believe that you progress through power, not through compassion. It creates tribalism. It tells you that the people who are next door to you don't deserve to live, right? Gangs or whatever. It it creates blind nationalism. It creates the Indian Removal Act. It creates the Trail of Tears. It creates slavery. It tells you that human beings shouldn't own property. It creates the Jim Crow laws. It creates the prison industrial complex. Bad policies create the war on drugs, it creates uh, 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 disproportionate amounts of uh, abortion clinics, but not only that, in particular communities that target minorities. It's a subversive attack on the fundamental teachings and theology of biology and family structures. 
Christopher J. H. Wright, Christopher J. H. Wright in the book of Old Testament Ethics and the People of God, he, he makes this statement. He says, oppression is by far the major recognized cause of poverty. The Old Testament asserts, as all modern analysis demonstrates, that only a tiny fraction of poverty is accidental. Mostly people are made poor by the actions of others, directly or indirectly. Poverty is caused, and the primary cause is the exploitation of others by those who own selfish, by whose own selfish interests are served by keeping others poor. But I, I believe that the Christian has been called to look at how we wield our power differently. We see that Christ right, used his power in a way that created progress through compassion. The storytelling that Christ gave is liberating, amen? So those of us who in the, who in this building, whether you're uh, a person of privilege or you have any, how are we using that for the benefit of other people? Lastly, I want to deal with unity. So we've talked about restoring dignity, teaching dignity, fulfilling dignity through the image of God, progressing with compassion over power. Lastly, I want to talk about unity. And, and, and I go to a church in Atlanta, Georgia, that's a very diverse church. It's an excellent church, right? Um, it's so diverse and it's so amazing. Sometimes we do like acoustic worship. And then sometimes we do like chocolate hill song. It's so amazing. Like it's just, it's all over the place. And and you and you and people come and they're it's like the book of Acts. They're like, how is how is God how is he doing this? Right? Um but there was something that tested the foundation of my church when uh, police brutality started to become uh something that was on the nation the nation's forefront. What you had are people from different political pers- persuasions begin to become very divisive on Facebook, right? So, you know, Facebook is like the landing strip for ignorant thought. But but what you had in our church was just people who were just venomous communication, just, ah. Uh, and then eventually our church told me I had to get off Facebook, so um, I had to stop. So, But what I learned was um, that even though our church was very diverse in racial makeup, somewhat diverse in cultural background, it wasn't really a church that was authentically connected. We had great proximity, but we didn't have great authenticity. And proximity is great, but if you're going to be in close proximity for months and years and years, and you're not getting to know one another despite the caricatures you make of them, then this is a very problematic community because what's going to happen is tragedy, trauma, or any kind of tension is going to break the foundation of that particular community. Right. Um, and, and part of the issue is, is that the reason why we didn't see great unity is because oftentimes we want to see unity in the form of uniformity. Right? We don't want to appreciate one another. We want to see assimilation. And oftentimes, usually those who get assimilated are the minorities. I've always I've had many a discussions with. Pastors, they, they bring me in from uh, areas of, 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 of Atlanta and, and other areas. they like, look, we live in this black community. Uh, how, can we, how can we integrate people into our church, black folk, right? And off, they, they want the magic statement, well, just change worship. Play some Fred Hammond. That's what they want to hear. 
But when you start to challenge, like, well, I'm sitting at a table with five leaders and all of them are white men, and you're trying to reach African-Americans and Latinos, maybe this is the problem right here. Maybe you need to diversify your leadership because I know I want to go to a church where the leadership somewhat reflects me. Um, and that doesn't mean that people of different races and ethnicities can't disciple and engage but I do think if you're trying to be intentional about being a church that is multi-ethnic, multi, then you need to have people, like even multicultural, right? You could be a church that is racially homogenous, but it can be very monolithic culturally. And how are you going to create different cultural connections with people, right? Um, uh, we ultimately don't want a Jesus that is complex, right? We want a Jesus that fits within our binary scope of political agendas, right? So I noticed, like, within the context of my church, you'll have people who believe that there was a Jesus who cared about abortion, but he didn't care about police brutality. Or you had a Jesus who cared about police brutality, but he didn't care about abortion. You had a Jesus that wanted him, people to go out and serve every Saturday morning and feed the homeless, but they didn't care about speaking about, about the corrupt systems and corporations that oftentimes create the poverty. We oftentimes in our church, we saw that there were people who wanted to speak out on the personal relationship with God, but didn't believe that God had any kind of dealing or personal connection, had any kind of real implication in community. See, at the end of the day, what I, what I found out is we don't want a complex father. We just want a partisan, a partisan parenting. So we wanted a Jesus that affirmed our political agenda and affirmed our political beliefs. And I believe that Jesus is much more complex than that. Right? And so when we talk about the Ann campaign, our philosophy is, is that we're just people who are going to be guided by the scriptures. And so when we talk about unity, there's just three things I'm going to share and I'm going to get out of here. <clears throat> In order for us to honestly, I think to have an honest conversation, have honest unity without uniformity, we're not just pouring ranch dressing on a salad, right, and saying this is unity. In order way, the, the way that we can really connect, I think there's three things. One, uh, I think we have to deal with the truth of history, especially when you're talking about cross-racial or cross-cultural fellowship. You have to do with truth before you can get to real reconciliation. Oftentimes, we just want to jump to reconciliation without truth, and that's just flattery because that foundation will be broken very quickly when there's tension. But then on the flip side, some of us, we just, want to, we just want to just tell the truth without any kind of reconciliation. And so that's a problem as well. Second is that uh, a pastor in Atlanta, a good friend of mine, John Amwachekwa, he makes this statement that God is just not good with us or he's not just content with us in a ceasefire. God desires to make enemies family. How do we do that? I think we do that by creating environments that don't force change, but creating environments where change can happen. And that's a quote from a, uh, a Henry Newman. And I think oftentimes we don't allow for, and I think this is a real indictment to people of color. Like we don't, we're very impatient when it comes to the race discussion. Like it can be exhausting. And when we talk about dealing with the areas of politics, are you, are you willing to actually create an environment to hear what people think on the other side of the aisle? 
and not just create a caricature of them, right? Because oftentimes what we want to do is create somebody who is irredeemable. But oftentimes what I think, like C.S. Lewis says, that creates something that when we create, when our enemies are a, a caricature of something that is far beyond redemption, and then we find out they're not, and we're disappointed about that. That, that says more about us and our heart than it does about those individuals that we create types about. So uh, how are we creating spaces where people can actually have real, authentic conversations where we're allowing people to say ridiculous things, to ask questions that may offend us? But at the end of the day, if we're truly family, then family loves hard. We love past attention. We're willing to deal with the hard conversations. And at the end of it, you know, we say, you know what? Though that was a dumb question, I still love you. Is that really our heart? Do we really, do we really want to see us ourselves reconcile to one another as Genesis communicates? Um, and then lastly, what I would love to see is appreciation and not appropriation. How do we begin to appreciate one another's backgrounds, cultures, and not just appropriate them, right? One of my favorite movies of all times is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, and I'm sure everybody has seen this movie. But there's a scene, just because you haven't seen it. There's a scene in a movie where they're in a, so Spike Lee's character, he works in a pizzeria, and he's having a conversation with uh, an Italian gentleman who he works with, and they have this decent relationship. But his friend or his associate is always using the word nigga, just constantly, nigga this, nigga that. And Spike Lee's like, why, why do you keep using that word? He's like, who's your favorite basketball player? He's like, uh, Magic Johnson. He's like, who's your favorite comedian? Eddie Murphy. He's like, who's your favorite entertainer? He's like, Prince. He was like, all your, your favorite people are, are niggers. See, the, the mindset is that is that they have a distorted view of that. They can appropriate those individuals' cultures, but they don't appreciate them truly. How do we begin to move past the appropriation and start to see people for the humanity and the dignity of which they are and which God has given them? Because I struggle with this as well. When I look at people of different, I have caricatures of people. I've, I saw Africa like this for the longest of times. I thought Africa was just this one large landmass where everybody looked the same, acted the same, and spoke the same language. Until I went there and I realized, no, it's a, a large landmass of multiple countries, multiple languages, and multiple cultures. And so how do we begin to appreciate people who think differently than us? How can we appreciate those relationships and not just appropriate them and create straw men for our argument? Amen? At the end of the day, one of the... the, the, the um, a powerful text that I love that I think brings it all together. Not just how does a Christian engage this idea of policy, not only from a personal level, but on an institutional level, is when Jesus saves the, the prostitute from being stoned. Right? So not only does he recognize that there's an unjust system that perpetuated this idea that there are some kinds of criminals that can get away with, un, with, with, with wickedness, but there are some who get on the, who are on the, on the tail end of it. Uh, he challenges that system. He saves this woman's life. But what I think is beautiful is that not only does he remove her from the penalty of death, but he tells her to go and sin no more. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus saying, like, not only are we to be personally engaged with one another, but I, it's, it's important for us to engage in the systems that we, that we create and we exist within. So, if we're going to talk about policies and being politically engaged, we must 
Start with the image of God. We must realize that we have to show compassion through progress, not power. And then we, to, we, we, we must unify through this idea that we are made to the image of God and we are to reflect God in what we do, who we are, and how we relate with one another. Amen. Okay, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and um, transition to a uh, time of Q&A. But before we do that, just a question to give to you around your table is uh, imagine together what it would look like to shape communities that actually learn about these issues, that exemplify dignity, compassion, and unity without uniformity. So dream together about what that would look like and then we'll come up and we'll ask some questions here in a moment. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Um, we're going we're gonna to go a little late today. Uh, we'll, we'll have plenty of time for questions. If you need to leave after one, feel free and go ahead and we'll, we'll stick around for a little bit afterwards. But uh, I'm going to just ask one or two questions and we're going to open it up. Um, my first question is for you, Katie, but I want to frame it with a story a little bit, okay? Um, a few years ago, we, a, a group at our church decided to do something called uh, the, the Tempe Bike Gang. And the idea was we saw some, I don't know if you remember this story, but there was some, there was like a motorcycle gang that beat a man to death. They surrounded him with their motorcycles, pulled him out of the car. He actually didn't die. He pulled through but they beat him up and they used this mob mentality of about 80 people on motorcycles. So we started to think about what, what does it look like to reimagine the mob mentality for the common good? So we got on our bicycles instead of motorcycles and we had, we were like 50 deep going around in bicycles. We'd go into a restaurant, pay for everyone's meal. We'd go buy extra meals and go share it with, with homeless folks. We would go clean up dog poop at the dog park. We, you know, and pick up trash, you know, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. But one of the things we decided to do is we thought we would have this little civic education game show in the park where random people could come up and they would win prizes for answering questions about the city. And our first question was, name, uh, you know, name our city council members. And we thought this would be kind of an interesting one. It would stump a few people. There was not a single person who knew more than one city council member. And then we looked around and we said, hey, uh, do we, people who don't have the sheet that has the names, do you know the city council member? And no one really did. And I think that there's something about that, about our political engagement where we're obsessed with the national. And on a local level, we're, we're pretty ignorant. And I think when we decide that we want to get educated, we don't even know how to get educated. So, Katie, you do a great work in this, a lot of writing. Uh, first of all, would you introduce what you do and then give us a vision of what it looks like to, about how to get educated, especially at a local level? Great. Um, so my name is Katie Thompson, and I work with Stephanie at CPJ. Uh, and my primary... Uh, task at CPJ is helping millennials, so 20 and 30-somethings, um, think about these ideas that Stephanie articulated um, and communicate them in a way that's engaging uh, and something that they want to be a part of. Um, and as you can imagine, might be 
uh, it's a little difficult at times. Um, millennials, one of the worst things you can do to a millennial is talk to them about millennials. Um, mm-hmm. We hate that. But because I am one, I do feel a little um, licensed to do it. Uh, but I think on on general, um, millennials tend to be distrustful um, of institutions more than any other generation. And I think uh, kind of the biggest and arguably ugliest institution that we see um, is government um, or this view of government as this complex, messy, dirty thing um, that you don't want to be a part of. So our work is to kind of recapture this vision of government, uh, that God has a good purpose for it. Um, he also has a good purpose for the church and for the family and for schools. Um, and how do we kind of recapture this vision of of a politics that encaptures all of that? Um, and to your, your question about the local, I, I just told Stephanie this story, but I met with um, a young woman in D.C. who's 25, um, and she is on the ANC, which is the Advisory Neighborhood Commission. Um, D.C. is split into six wards, six or seven, um, and each has these commissions that kind of do local regulation and work. Um, and this young woman, 25 years old, um, had a nine-to-five job, had extra time on her hands, and really wanted uh, to love her neighbor through political service. Um, so she said, you know what, I have time. I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to run. Um, so she ran against a three-time incumbent, Uh, and thought she had no chance, Uh, but what she did, she went door to door and introduced herself, Um, and most people, you know, would say, what is the ANC? Do we even have a a council member? What is that? Um, And she kind of let that speak for itself, Uh, and it turns out she won. Um, She's in her second year doing it, and I just think that's an amazing testament to the power of actually getting to know the people in your neighborhoods, in your cities, um, to put a face to a name, uh, and to love your neighbor through um, through that way. Um, Stephanie, yesterday you mentioned kind of how you guys did it as an office, how you had a learning community together to, to help understand what's going on locally. Can you just give us a brief explanation of, of what you guys did? Yeah, and I wish I could take credit for this idea, but it wasn't my idea. One of the guys on our team, we pray together as a staff, and one of our um, guys, when it was his turn to lead prayer, said, here's your prayer homework, everyone. Um, you have to bring to prayer uh, the names of all the candidates running for some uh, office in the community in which you live. And you have to be able to tell the rest of us about it. And then we're going to pray about these folks um, by their first names. Um, And we have staff that live in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. So we ended up having an incredible opportunity to really learn about each other's elections. But I think it really challenged each of us uh, to pray about the folks uh, as real human beings um, and really understand um, the well-being of the various communities in which we live. So I can tell you a lot about races that I can't vote in now, um, you know, in a way that I think is really important in sort of thinking about the larger scope of the community in which we live. Um, but also it's definitely a place where for us uh, brought home the reality of how actually finding that information uh, for folks, uh, that there were challenges to even getting the basic information that we needed about, well, what does that person do? What's that office for? Um, you know, and, and that's a place where you know, there was intervention on the part of our staff to say, hey, we need to work on fixing that as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know. You know, I got to a point where I'm like, I don't even know what's at stake with the the clean water, you know, commissions and, and these sorts of things. Uh, so I think it's important. 
And I think you mentioned that you had different people researching different things and explaining it to the group, which I think was really huge. So um, from, your, from your music, it's pretty evident that you've read extensively. Uh, what suggestions... Or a fake like I've read extensively. And today's the moment of truth. So, um, what, what would you say are some books that probably aren't on people's bookshelves that ought to be on people's bookshelves to help them engage in the social issues of America? <clears throat> There's two political books that I'm reading. Well, one I've kind of read. The other one I'm reading. Um, one is a book called Bad Religion by Ross Douthat. Mm-hmm. It's a really good book. Um, he talks about it's a more sophisticated, it's more of a more sophisticated and academic um, take on a similar book, which I've also read, which is Onward by Russell Moore. So those two books are kind of similar, but if you want a more, a more academic and high theological view of what's happened to the GOP or what's happening to the conservative, um, mostly in the Bible Belt, then Bad Religion is an excellent book on that. Um, a book that I love that talks about politics, race, and um, and social justice from a very high biblical Presbyterian perspective is Free at Last by Carl Ellis. Hmm. Love that book. Um, those, are the, those are the books that are safe for you guys. I can throw some other authors out there, and you guys will judge me. Throw one that's not, that's not safe. Uh... <laughs> There's a uh, any well you know one I love I love everything by W E B Du Bois mm-hmm. so the souls of black folk uh, talent at tenth uh, a lot of his writing is is amazing um, James Cone mm-hmm. um, crossing the lynching tree uh, Thurman there's a now yeah. Uh, this book is nobody's going to buy it, but it's, it's it's an anthology. It's ridiculously thick. It's called Preaching with Sacred Fire, and it's uh, a collection of uh, African-American sermons and, and speeches that date back to the 1600s to present day. It's, it's a monster, but it it's so rich for me because it, it no longer excuse. It gave me the excuse that, well, I didn't know there were great black thinkers and theologians in the past. And so these are people who are writing about history. They're writing about church uh, discipline. They're writing about polity. They're writing about everything. It's just amazing. It's just an amazing book. But there are some people in that book that I wouldn't recommend you read. Um, so they're not just Christians. There are some, um, some other, you know, religions and sects from there that are, that are promoted in that book. That's very helpful. All right. So we're going to open it up to questions. Um, here's my one request. Do not give speeches in the form of a question. Uh, please just ask a question to the panel. Um, uh, if you got something to say, we'll put you up here for a different topic. But um, who, who has questions? Go ahead and raise your hand and uh, fire away. Ooh, one more book. This is my favorite book. This is like my favorite book. It's, uh, it's called Justice by Michael Sandow. He is a, uh, he's a Harvard professor, and it's, that book is strong. Like It's an amazing book. That's great. Sandel, S-A-N-D-E-L. All right, first question. We know you have one. Go ahead, Josh. Um, have you guys seen churches that are predominantly white with uh, minorities sprinkled in begin to move and engage in these conversations? 
as a local church and as a community. I don't go to a predominantly white church, so I don't know how to answer that question. Yeah, no examples. No examples. Okay. All right, that's fine. Um, it's okay. That breaks my heart. Okay. Did you not have anything? Okay. Um, Everyone hear the question? Well, go ahead and repeat the question and then the answer. The question was, how have we seen um, majority white churches uh, move forward in this discussion of race relations and politics? So I I came from a church in Dallas called Denton Bible Church. Um, That's the church that planted our church in Denton that also planted our church in Atlanta. So we were a church plant of a church plant of a church plant. It's crazy. But there's another church plant that came out of that church in Memphis called Fellowship, uh, Fellowship Memphis. And there's a you know guy who's pretty popular. I don't know if you guys ever heard of Brian Loritz. And so Brian Loritz, and there was a team of individuals who were planted from Denton Bible Church to were sent from Denton Bible Church to plant that church in Memphis with with Brian Loritz. The one great example of how to uh, use your power for the benefit of others and to show an ex- a, a wonderful example of you know reconciliation is that initially. So for you guys who know who Brian Loritz is, he's the lead. Well, he was lead. He just left the church to do some other things. But he was the lead pastor of that church for seven, eight years. But initially, when that church was planted, it was supposed to be a white gentleman named John Bryson who was supposed to be the, the lead pastor. But before the church actually started, he had in his mind, he said, you know what would be a wonderful picture of reconciliation to this city that is very divisive and racist? Is if I, a white man, said, you know what? Of course, it would it would it would look normative for me to lead a church of 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 black men and women and have a congregation as diverse. But what if I said, you know what, I want this gentleman to be the lead pastor, and they did that. And it's I mean it's it's one of the examples of what it looks like to have a multiracial, multicultural church. Is when a gentleman said, you know what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use my my power and my influence to allow someone else to lead. And, uh, and and show the city of what it looks like for um, a white gentleman to serve under a black man who's definitely qualified, who's definitely gifted. And um, and the church has been a wonderful influence of, and flourishing to this day, even after he's left. Excellent. Next question. I don't get to share mine. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> we were fighting over who was going to share it. Um, so actually, the, the church I'm in right now is the first majority white church I've been in. Um, and so I can talk a little bit about the congregation where I am. Um, there really is a decision on the part of our leaders uh, to have difficult conversations. And that literally means setting aside time, right? Um, and it's folks at a table saying these discussions are some of the most important things that this congregation can spend its time doing, and it's going to come at the expense of other things that we think are important. And we're going to have to explain that and defend it and have decisive sort of like on team, like we can have a discussion at the table where, you know, there's people who would say, actually, I don't think this is the most important thing we can talk about and disagree really robustly with one another um, and then walk out of that room united to say, we're having these conversations. Um, so it's, it is literally about the resource of time and it's a discussion that has, I think, has to happen at the leadership level in a congregation. All right. Go ahead. You mind standing up and speaking loud? Really? <laughs> Sounds like you're starting a speech, but go ahead. No, no there's the old adage that all, all politics is local. Mm-hmm. And kind of what 
Stephanie, you mind jumping on that? No, I don't mind. So here's the thing. Um, I think we've become so divorced from anything political, and uh, our way of dealing with what is dysfunctional is to basically say a pox on both your houses, Washington. That is not taking any effort, right? It's a non-effort. It's Mm -hmm. the adult equivalent of a Facebook rant, right? Uh, So for me, uh, I think we actually need to relearn all of these practices. And the learning lab has to be our local communities where we actually have to look each other in the eye generally, right? I mean, you know, the ANC story that Katie told, the thing that's tragic about that is, right, there's only 2,000 people that that person represents. So, like, literally walking around your own community and meeting every single one of those things. But when this woman was talking about her experience, she said, you know, part of why I think I won is because people had no idea who the guy was that had won three times, right? Um, You know, this is doable stuff, but we actually have to practice it. And then we have to tell those stories to each other, right, of the way that things are changing so we have a different vision. You know, I was talking to these guys earlier, and I was saying something like, you know, the big changes that need to happen – no, I turned 40 last weekend. There are going to be things that happen after I die. Um, but the changes that I think we can actually start to make in our local communities, we start today. Um, so to me, there's more ability to observe and practice and be schooled in those things. Um, and that's going to be kind of the learning lab for how we're going to really take on some of these big, big structural things that are going to need to happen. But right now, we just kind of point the finger at the bad guys, um, and that lets us off the hook. And that, that is an unfaithful response. Go ahead. Quickly, I heard someone say the the, um, the the best form of government is the one that's closest to you. And so the other thing I love about the idea of like just engaging in local government, there's less partisanship, there's less partisan politics. It's like the smaller – then you actually get to engage with your conscience and, and you get to see how ideas stand alone apart from the parties that promote these particular issues. And I think it also makes you engage with your neighbor a little bit more because it's, it's harder to vote things when your neighbor you know is being affected by that. And you live and you talk and you do relationship with this. And then you're like, okay, you know what? Now I'm starting to actually work through why I should vote or yes or no to on this particular issue. So, I, yeah, I, that's one of the things that Ann Campaign is, is heavily involved with is trying to get uh, information out there on who our local judges are, the commissioners, uh, what bills are up. Um, and how do we um, give more information out there about those particular issues? I think that's really profound because a lot of the information exists on a national level. There's not a lot of deep, thoughtful reflection on local things, especially from Christians. Um, I just I have a sense that there's somebody in this room who'd like to ask Katie the question of what are political <laughs> issues um, that are really important and affect a lot of people, but don't get emphasized. I have a sense someone wants to ask that question. Anyone want to ask that question? Okay, in the back, they want to ask that question. Go ahead, Katie. Awesome. Um, well, I would point you actually to our book that you have in, our, in your hand. Um, so that book looks at five issues of domestic poverty um, that we talk about as in your backyard, um, but you don't know anything about them. Uh, so a few of those that I would just mention briefly uh, that we look at, we look at the um, foster care to human trafficking pipeline here in the U.S., um, the juvenile justice system. We just spoke last night about um, youth prisons in the U.S. and the great injustices that are happening there. Um, one that I'm particularly passionate about is payday lending, um, which if you talk about in your backyard, um, not you know it varies state by state, um, but that's something that most people blow by and have no idea what those storefronts are 
Um, but when you learn more, that's when it's unbelievable. So those are a few of the issues that I would say. Um, and when it comes to payday lending, there are some people in this room who are really doing some good work. Mm-hmm. Um, connect with Danae if you want to be connected to that or any other issue in the world. Connect with Danae about that. <laughs> so uh, next question. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, I want you. Yep, stand. I think uh, there's there's an, I think one uh, reading there's so there's so much literature out there I think um, that will help engage in how we've gotten to this place and why there's a lot of tension. So for instance, well, all right, just just a, a quick like it's easy for us to look at uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and create kind of like a a caricature of them who just rowdy rambunctious people who just stop freeways and interrupt people's lunches and stuff like that. And I don't agree with all the disruptive tactics, but I understand it mainly because I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, well, outside Los Angeles, where I've experienced, you know, excessive force, where I've been pulled over. My my uncle was murdered by police officers. Um, uh, And so I, I know what it's like. But then in order to engage in this discussion more deeply, there was just a documentary that was released that I think is, is powerful. It's called 13th. And if you, and if you, if you watch that documentary, right, what, you're, what you're able to see is how, like, systemically, and I know when people say systemic and social justice, like, your Dar- or your, your Cal- I mean, not your Calvin, but your Marxist ears go up, and like, ah, oh, it's cultural Marxism. But, I mean, like, like we've communicated, if God created us to create that we know in flawed and in our, in our frailty we create bad systems and then this is an example in this documentary is an example of how policing and the criminal justice system is a very broken and flawed system that has benefited particular groups of people and had its aim on others and so when you talk about the black lives matters movement it's just really like this is just the crescendo of frustration from years and these are people who are saying you know what we need to change our criminal justice system and how police officers approach and, and do work in our community. Now, is everything that they promote? No, I mean, that's a whole other discussion of them as an institution. But in generally, that's just a microcosm of the kind of discussions we need to have. Like, we need to have a true discussion about why is there so, so much hostility and tension surrounded in this issue? And if we can do the history, if we can deal with the truth of that issue, and then we come to this point, like, you know what? I get it then we're able to have real discussions. But if we're never really honest with ourselves, if, we're ne- if we just keep saying, well, that was centuries ago, then, you know, then we'll never progress because we got to understand, like, people benefited from those policies today. And, you know, yeah, I don't want to get on the soapbox. But, yeah, I think that's one example. So there's, d- there's different books, I think, different movies, different films, different ways of engagement. And I would just say just, just uh, one of the things that I would like to see more and, and I didn't touch on this necessarily, but when we talk about the church specifically, um, one of the reasons why I promoted that book, Preaching with Sacred Fire, is because even in a lot of African-American churches, all I hear uh, when they quote people are, well, more of your 
reformed, neo-reformed African-American churches, usually the only people they quote are white theologians and historians. And that's great. But if you're talking to people like me who grew up with identity complexes and, sh- and struggle with being affirmed in who they are, you're, you're, you still grow up with this, 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 this psychological wiring like, well, I guess black people didn't contribute to Christianity. Or I guess people of color didn't co- contribute to Christianity. So I, what I would like to see are more people reading African-Americans or Latinos or Asians who were Christians and quoting them and engaging them in a discussion and honestly being more intellectually and scholastically honest with Christianity's influence or with Africa's influence with Christianity in general. And if we start to tell those stories and not start uh, church history in Europe, but we'd rather start it in Africa where it was, then we'll start to have more dignity-affirming conversations for people who don't look like the majority white churches. And so then you'll have... It'll, that'll transition to easier conversations with people of issues of justice. So, I, I, and, and also the other thing is, is when you, when you posture yourself on issues that are privileged to you, you're going to like, you know, it's, I think oftentimes we emphasize the things that are important to us. And if you get a diversity of people around you, you're going to get a diversity of conversation. And I'm not saying like the, the, to change the imperatives of the scripture, but you're going to get things and you're going to hear people communicate things that are important to them. And as long as it's submitted to the gospel, I think it's a beautiful thing to, to hear the, uh, people's hearts from different contexts and different backgrounds. Um, can, can you guys speak to tangible changes that can happen within criminal justice that would promote more justice and flourishing? Yeah. Um, so I'll speak to juvenile justice in particular. Um, and one that we've been reading a lot about and talking a lot about um, are youth prisons. So um, these are, you know, usually geographically isolated, locked facilities, um, function pretty much identically like an adult prison, but it's 12 to 18-year-olds there. Um, And we are advocating for closing youth prisons um, and shifting entirely to community-based alternatives, Um, kind of the logic being that anything that um, happens in an institution can be done much better in community um, with family, friends, resources um, in your own neighborhood nearby. Um, So that would be one example um, that's kind of um, being talked about nationally right now. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the the AND campaign is in some discussions with some very influential people about a criminal reform bill that's happening right now. And um, one just very tangible example of how we can show like how the system has been dis- dis- distorted is and we all know like the war on drugs and the war on drugs put a lot of African Americans in prison because of non-violent offenses, non- non-violent drug offenses um, and but now what you'll see is somewhat of like a gentrification of the drug war <laughs> and now that you'll find that there's more like white teenagers who are getting addicted to these opiums and, and heroin now what we're saying is, or what the government is saying is like, yo, let's not criminalize this behavior because we recognize this is not helpful. What we need is, uh, uh, is recovery and counseling. I'm like, wait, hold up. <laughs> my cousins, all my cousins got locked up for marijuana, and so now y'all want to change the narrative when it doesn't benefit. And so these are the things, right, that I think are, is quite problematic with our system. And now, it's, it, now the story is starting to change. And so... Um, but the problem is, is a lot of people, a lot of influential people don't want to pass this bill because it looks like they're soft on crime. 
And that's, to me, like, that's not image-bearing, right? Like, when nobody's saying people who commit crime, like, violent crime shouldn't go to prison. What we're saying is, like, we need to change the way that, uh, that nonviolent offenses, right, are, are seen in this country because it's been a, a great disservice for decades. So, I want to say one thing on Absolutely. that, too. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? I shared this with another group yesterday, uh, but I'm in drug and alcohol recovery. I went to rehab when I was 16. I started using drugs when I was 12. And uh, when I get dragged in front of the judge, right, because, you know, the cops pick me up, they take me home to my house in the suburbs, right, to my parents. I walk before the judge, and I'm in street clothes with mom and dad, lawyered up through the street door, right? And uh, the 15-year-old that my husband mentors, who's African-American from D.C., uh, he does the same exact thing as me. He walks in shackled because most youth in our country are shackled when they're presented in prison or presented in a courtroom, the logic being they're a flight risk. No matter what they've done, they're shackled. Um, and uh, he, you know, is in jail clothes. Uh, he doesn't get to go home to mom. There's maybe mom is there, uh, and no lawyer, um, and those types of things. And we did exactly the same thing, right? I'm 40. I'm the president of a think tank. Darion's life, cho- uh, ex- uh, you know, the, the on-ramp for him into the criminal justice system. Um, his, you know, life opportunities severely limited uh, by us doing exactly the same thing in the existing kind of framework. So, there's all kinds of inflection points there, but it's baked into the system. So, um, you know, when we talk in front of groups who are working for prosecutors, you know, who have incentives to be tough on crime, right? And in a lot of places, you elect those folks, right? So you have an opportunity. I mean, I'm aware that I'm speaking in Phoenix, like you know this, but you have an opportunity uh, to change that. Um, I think another place that just, you know, uh, is unattended to is um, thinking about the work of people who are actually working within the system itself um, and the types of the incentives within uh, detention facilities and the like. And then the last place is really the work of juries. Um, So in a lot of these kinds of things, you know, juries are not involved, but in some of them they really are. And you know, I don't know anyone that receives jury service with joy, but we ought. It is a direct way we are mapping on to justice, the kind of justice that God would like to see, right? Um, and one of the real things that happens in juries is folks do not understand that people are supposed to be presumed innocent until they are proven guilty, And I cannot tell you how many stories I have from people who have talked about their jury service where the presumption was this person was guilty because they looked like a perp. They're from this neighborhood. They're whatever. Like, this is rampant. Um, And we're destroying people's lives. And when folks decide, I don't really want to take this seriously, it's a huge problem. So I would actually ask you to encourage jury service among your folks as an act of response to God. All right. Well, now I'm going to end with a question that is on everyone's minds right now. This is a question that I think most people in this room are passionate about and have strong opinions about. So electoral reform. Uh, you know, we, we, we're all educated on that. We know uh, how the electoral system affects uh, public justice and flourishing. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Can you talk to us about, uh, you know, uh, Stephanie, this is, I, I want, would you talk to us about what are, what are some problems that come from the way that we do electoral stuff? And 
what are some reforms that can happen that can contribute greater that could contribute to greater partnership and pursuing of good policy? So, um, you know, to go back to your thing about the local. So, um, you know, one of the challenges we are kind of in all these false choices, right? Binaries, you know, you're this or that. Um, and uh, there's an opportunity, I think, that we have as we have, you know, uh, become more clear on how these are false choices and not entirely helpful. Um, to not have it be winner-take-all systems, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, um, you know, and again, this is one of those things I'll probably be dead before I, you know, I won't, I hope I live to see it, but um, <laughs> my uh, vision for this is really thinking about how we change this at the local level. Um, so to start there, where essentially you end up with more political parties participating they have to be more clear about their platforms because uh, they are in a tighter race. Um, so they have to be more clear about who they are and why they think the things that they think. It builds for easier coalitions. And you can organize your municipal or your local elections on a rank choice vote. So essentially you have people who are assigned sort of proportioned representation. So you're, rather than a primary where you end up with a Republican and Democrat, you have a primary, you end up with the top two or the top three candidates that came out of it. Um, But the way that it's structured is such that the people who win know exactly what percentage of the population elected them um, and have then to really have a plan from the beginning of how they're going to not just represent their base, but really represent the entirety of your local level political community. It took Minneapolis-St. Paul 20 years to make this happen, but Christians were involved in this. Um, And they were involved in this work alongside an organization called Fair Vote that is a national organization. Um, And it is not a faith-based organization, um, but it's led by people who have come from other political communities outside of the United States who've seen that this does justice to the diversity of who citizenry actually are. Um, And so it really allows an opportunity to say, hey, as Christians, we live in a pluralistic society. Not everybody shares our views, uh, but we want to make sure that we have representation that actually cares about the whole of who we are, not just part. Ultimately, I think that we need proportional representation in the House of Representatives for the United States. Mm -hmm. I think it takes care of the gerrymandering problem. But I don't think that we have the appetite or the will to make that change until we're actually engaged in it and have seen how it works at the local level. So my hope would be that uh, we invest in pursuing those types of electoral reforms locally um, and then build from there uh, to be able to reshape how we do the House of Representatives. It's called Fair Vote is the organization. And if you are like a Gen Xer, the former head of Fair Vote, I think he might still be the board chair, um, is the basis for Nirvana. Whoa. It's awesome. <laughs> All right. So uh, we're going to wrap, wrap it up. Um, would you give them a hand and thank them for speaking? We, we really appreciate you guys and your, your input uh, into our community. If you want to continue the conversation and engage with the work they've done, Um, This book here, Unleashing Opportunity, I've read it. It's really good, written by Stephanie and Katie, and it's phenomenal. It's for sale in the back. Show Baraka's album, The Narrative. Don't just listen to it on Spotify. Actually buy it so you can support good art. I may actually have some copies tonight. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying I'm not, like, peddling the church, but I'm just saying I just may happen to sneak a couple in this tonight wherever I am. That's where, good. Where will I be? Where will I be? You'll be at First Wednesday. First Wednesday. I wasn't planning on plugging that, but selfishly, well, you, you know, hey, that for me. I got three That's kids. That's great. I appreciate that. Uh, 
That's good. Okay. Uh, let me look, close in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for the, the, the minds and hands and experiences and stories of the people in this room. And we know that they are gifts from you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be able to steward those gifts well for the sake of our neighbor, individually, locally, as families, nationally. Give us a vision of your justice. Give us an imagination that helps us understand what it would look like for our neighbor to flourish. And give us a heart like Christ who moves to the cross and and is giving of himself in everything he does. Lord, would you make us self-giving, generous uh, people instead of self-interested people in our engagement with these things. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks, everyone.